Murder at the UN. Murder in New Orleans. Murder in San Monique. Funerals, coffins, knives, and snakes. Ambassadors, jazz, heroin, and voodoo rituals. And where's Bond? Let's dig in and decode the pre-title sequence to live and let die. Hi, this is Dan Silvestri. Tom Pizzotto. And Vicky Hodges. From SpyMovieNavigator.com and our Cracking the Code of Spy Movies show. Join us as we uncover the spells that are cast in Live and Let Die. All right, this might be the most unusual pre-title sequence of any Ian Productions James Bond movie. Yeah, after the gun barrel intro, the gun barrel opens up onto the United Nations building in New York City. An active international session is in progress as a representative from Hungary is speaking. Now the camera pans to the left past the representatives from Sweden and Honduras and focuses on the rep from the United Kingdom, who looks a little bored, by the way. <laughs> yeah, doesn't he? This, this guy was played by James Drake. Now, the shot switches to the translator booth for the USA, UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and Ireland. Yeah, and the, translator, ten- the translator sounded kind of bored there, too. <laughs> yeah, well, I would imagine yeah. they would be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Our attention is brought to the control panel with the names of these countries, and we see a hand come into picture over the control panel and unplug the UK jack. It's a dark hand with a ring and some type of band around the wrist. Yeah. We're not sure if it's a watch. I, th- I actually also think, it, I think it is. I think it is a watch. Though, is it? Yeah, look at it, it looks like a watch band. Okay. Mm-hmm. We also note that all the wire feeds leading it to the panel are white. Yeah. The UK rep notices feed is cut and he looks confused. Well, that's the UK. And <laughs> taps his earpiece a few times. Then we see a red wire feed being plugged into the UK jack. Okay, they had to change the colour so we know there is a difference here <laughs> and that he's not plugging into the same jack again. Yeah. And hey, maybe it's to make sure the perpetrator doesn't plug into the wrong wire too. Yeah, I mean, it's it's cool. And I think that's true. It's like, okay, they have to tell us that. And then, okay, and maybe it's for the guy too. Who knows? But, yeah. but this it makes red, it easier if they are different colors to get the job done. Yeah, the red wire, though, is hooked up to a mechanical electrical type plunger. And a hand plunges down the handle. And we hear a loud screeching noise. Contradiction to subparagraph. And we see the UK rep grimace in pain as his head slams onto the table in front of him. It's like, okay, uh, it was quick. So here we're wondering what the heck happened. But the reps sitting to this guy's right watch him hit the table and they look totally unaffected. They're like, mm, okay. This is normal. <laughs> and I'm wondering here, is the UK rep here electrocuted to death or does the sound kill him? Because we hear this loud screeching sound that we just heard. Now, And we forced you to listen to. <laughs> yeah, and you had to hear it. We hear the sound. So maybe just so we know something is happening, they make the sound. So, okay, we're alerted as the audience. Ooh, something's happening here and it could be bad. I've looked it up if sound can kill you. So I, I pulled a Tom here. <laughs> I looked this up. You, you learned how to use Google, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a search engine thing, isn't it? It's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I knew I, I heard about it. Yeah. So I looked it up and sound can kill you, but the circumstances under which it can kill you are pretty remote you'd have to like be standing in the middle of a 10-foot woofer or something 
for it to kill you. But not just a little earpiece. No, not a little earpiece in one ear. So I think he's electrocuted. The plunger makes me think that it, this is an electrocution. So electric shock, and he dies quickly. So I think that's pretty much what happened there. Anybody else think it's different? I think it's electric. Yes, you know, I actually think this whole thing, this whole scene at the United Nations was really stupid. Well, you're wrong. I mean, no, I'm not. (laughs) The only redeeming quality was how absolutely bored the UN reps looked. (laughs) That that is a nice part of this scene, and it takes them quite a while. It worked. It takes them quite a while before someone reacts, and it's like. Oh, okay. Yeah, they, All right. They're so bored. I mean, I, and I, I can imagine those guys having to sit there listening to speech after speech with the yeah, dull sure. pontificating monologues. Yeah, boring. The bored looks on these reps' faces were great. So yeah. I'll give it credit for that. Yeah, I give it credit because it it's a murder, and it's a, it's a unique kind of remote murder through... Yeah, but... He's wired up. Here's why I think it's stupid. <laughs> right, we, we, we get this red cable... The plunger thingy, yeah. the sound, and how fast this guy dies. I mean, it was just all stupid. I mean, in fact, in all of all the electrocutions James Bond series, be fast. this is probably my least favorite death throughout the whole thing. <laughs> Maybe next to the third death Wait. in this pre-title sequence. Wait, you like we'll unique? Talk about that one later. You like unique situations. This is death by plunger remotely. Oh, I mean, come just, on. First just, time in Bond history. It's just stupid. This ah. particular this particular death always reminds me of the 1989 Batman film. I know we're going off, off spy for a minute. Yeah. But Joker had a buzzer on his hand yeah. and oh, he yeah. electrocuted the goon. Yeah. Um, but at least the, the people who were around the table reacted to his death. They yeah. just don't seem to do anything on this one. Here? No, we lost another one. I mean, and, and the thing that stinks is, the, I, I don't like the first one and the third one in this series. Oh, my God. I absolutely love the second death that, we, that we're going to talk about here in a minute. Oh, yeah. That's in the pre-title. It's actually like one of my too. favorite death scenes in all of the Bond movies. All right, all but right. This first, the first part of this in the United Nations, forget it. <laughs> oh. Anyway, the guy keels over uh, from being electrocuted quickly, and electrocution deaths are quick, so I, I believe all that. He's wired up, bam, bam, he's gone. So we get this quick shot of the rep from San Monique, played by Yafit Kodo, and who plays Kananga, and Mr. Big. And Big, by the way, is an acronym in the Fleming novel for his real name, Bonaparte Ignace Gallia. So there you go. That's what Big comes from. And there's a woman next to him, Solitaire, played by Jane Seymour. Now, we get a nice camera shot from the back of the UK rep, whose head is on the table. The other table's in front of him at a distance. And one guy is finally standing up and reacting to this. And, and, and it took quite a while to do that. Okay, wow. So we're wondering why this guy was killed. I mean, why is a guy at the UN killed? Almost two minutes in, by the way, and we haven't seen Bond. Whoa. Well, now, at least this scene did show us Kanaga is a UN rep. So, I mean, there was another purpose for this scene other than this stupid death. (laughs) And the shot of solitaire reminds me that the name we have mentioned numerous times in our podcast comes back around on this one. Nikki Vanderzeel is back this time doing some of the dubbing of the voice of solitaire in yet another uncredited role. Yeah, yeah, which which I was surprised at because, you know, she did some of the dubbing. I think uh, Sol- yeah. uh, or Jane yeah, Seymour did some of the talking. Yeah, she Jane Seymour, but I, I don't understand on this. I, I can understand her doing it on maybe 
uh, accents that aren't, you know, so, so clear. Yeah. What was wrong with Jane Seymour's accent? I don't know. Exactly. I don't, I don't know. understand that one. I no. love Jane Seymour's voice. I love her. She's beautiful. I'd love to have her on the show. Jane, come on out. <laughs> You're invited. <laughs> yeah, we love you. Anytime you want. All right. Now, the United Nations has appeared, or its fictional counterpart, in many movies. So this isn't the first time the UN is appearing in a movie. We remember Alfred Hitchcock's 1959 movie, North by Northwest, which shows Cary Grant approaching the entrance to the UN building. And the UN, however, did not allow Hitchcock to film there. So this was done with a hidden camera when, for this movie. And we talk about this in our podcast on North by Northwest. And the United Nations has been a setting or talked about in probably over 30 other movies. So there you go. All right, so immediately the shop switches to New Orleans and yeah. a man in a suit and a hat, smoking a cigarette, leaning against a pole. This is Hamilton, played by Robert Dix. Now we hear jazz music and we see a shot from behind him and over his shoulder of a couple of people walking past a, pl a place called the Fillet of Soul, which is a restaurant. Then to his left, we hear and see some type of parade in the street. It turns out to be a funeral. It turns from the perpendicular street onto the street where the man is standing, so it will pass him. We see a shot of someone walking into the fillet of soul. So the second time we are shown this restaurant. And you can see the address above the door behind the man, 837. Mm -hmm. The heavyset man leading the procession has an Olympia brass band sash across his chest and over his shoulder. Yeah. Hmm. And there are about 11 guys playing instruments behind him. And then we see a casket coming round the corner. So, yes, it's a funeral. But before we figure that out, okay. I wanted to talk a minute about this Olympia Brass Band. Yeah. This was a real New Orleans band yep. that was originally founded in the late 1800s. It ran until about World War I, and then it got resurrected in 1958. So, Harold DeJean created this brass band. He brought it back the name. He was a saxophone player. Now, I can't be sure because it's almost impossible to see his face in the way they filmed this scene, but I think he is playing the saxophone in that band for a couple of the shots. Uh -huh. He's kind of obscured by another band member. I've seen other pictures of him. So if any of our listeners know for sure, boy, I'd love it if you let me know, but I'm pretty sure that was him. Yeah. Okay. Now, as for the music they're playing here, the slow dirge is just a closer walk with thee. Yeah been recorded by numerous artists over the years. In fact, in one of my favorite non-spy movies, Harry Dean Stanton sings it. Yeah. Of course, I'm talking about the movie Cool Hand Luke. That's a great movie, yeah. Of course, A Closer Walk with Thee is A Closer Walk with God. But here for Hamilton, it's, <laughs> it will be a close walk with him as they carry him away in the funeral procession, which we're going to see in just a second. So, yeah, now that, so that's there's a, a little that's, more meeting there. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Now, what I also really like, so this funeral has a very New Orleans feel to it. Yeah. And then when the trumpet sounds, the music goes up tempo, and we hear Joe Avery's piece. Mm -hmm. It wasn't uncommon for New Orleans jazz funerals to have a slow march and then break into upscaled music. Yeah. And I love how they had the marchers answering the trumpets blare with hey. <laughs> yeah. Because that's how that song is normally done. If you're in a club and a trumpeter gives you that intro, yeah. everybody goes, hey, it's another piece of authenticity to the New Orleans feel of the scene, which is another reason why I just love this scene so much. It's a great scene. So in the movie, the band members were real. Mm -hmm. Now look how they're used. 
The bass drum is prominent, especially in Just a Closer Walk with Thee. There's no snare drum being played in that song, but watch the snare drum player. <laughs> he's air playing his drum during the scene. He's moving his hands like this, but he's, he's never hitting the drum batter's head. I mean, they're included as band members in the scene because they're from that band. Yeah. He wasn't needed for the song, but you just have to love that. It's tying these people, the yeah. local people into the scene. I just totally love that. Yeah, it's a great scene. It's a yeah. terrific Plus, scene. The colorful umbrellas, the big hair, the clothing, they all add an element of realism for the time period. So it's just, I just love it. Yeah, it's good. And we see our suited man that we were talking about. He's watching the funeral and it's starting to pass him by. Another gentleman appears behind him over his right shoulder and stands right next to him. Our guy turns and looks at him for a second. Casket is probably about 15 feet away from him. We see a grieving woman. Lots of people in this funeral procession. A lot of people. And our guy turns to the gentleman who appeared next to him and asks, Whose uh, funeral is it? Yours. We see a close-up of the second man's hand, and a switchblade is opened. And he calmly says, Yours. <laughs> and he stabs him. That's <laughs> great. I think that's a nice... That's nice. That's a good yep. touch, right? That's okay. Yep. The voice of Hamilton is actually that of James Bond stalwart Shane Rimmer, uh, who did all manner of voice work on, on the Bond films and also appeared as numerous characters during the Moore period. And what is even more interesting is that Roger Moore's mother loved the silent movie star Richard Dix. And with that being said, Moore managed to get Robert Dix, Richard Dix's son, uh, cast as Hamilton. That's cool. <laughs> that, that's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Now, fun. another fun piece about this scene that I just love. I mean, first, this tie-in with Richard Dix and Robert Dix, I just, that's, that's really cool to me. But then... The guy who stabs Hamilton was played by a guy named Elvin Alcorn, and he was a well-known and respected New Orleans trumpeter. So it's another way that yeah. Eon Productions brought in the New Orleans realism, the people from New Orleans into this scene. I think it's a great touch. Yeah, it is. So here the guy gets stabbed in the side, and he falls into the street. Now, that's okay. It looks like another murder, right? The guys carrying the casket come over to the body, lower the casket over him, <laughs> and raise it again, and the body's gone. So we assume that this casket is some kind of gadget here, right? So, wow. But we have to note that while they were filming this, the stuntman who was playing the dead body had to reach up into the casket and grab handles in there so he could lift himself into the bottom of the casket, and it would look automatic. This was brilliant and so well done. They lift yeah. it up, he's gone. Great stuff. Movie yeah. magic. Yeah. And after the body's picked up, the music gets more up-tempo and jazzy, and people in the procession start dancing and so on. Like a real New Orleans funeral, as you mentioned, Tom. So, all right, I'm reading a book that my daughter gave me for Christmas, When Harry Met Cubby, the story of James Bond producers, and it's by Robert Sellers. Well, it's a great book. And in it, he it says... Is. Yeah, in it he says that Cubby was trying to make a living when he went to work for a relative who owned the Long Island Casket Company. But Cubby found the work depressing. <laughs> but his I imagine why. <laughs> yeah, but his time there kind of stuck with him, and it's why, Sellers says, we see coffins and related things in some of the Bond movies, like The Hearse and Dr. No, Bond in a Coffin in the Crematorium in Diamonds Are Forever, and the coffin transported to the airport with the diamonds, Live and Let Die 
Our movie here has the coffin full of snakes in San Monique, in addition to the funeral coffin here that we're talking about now. And even Moonraker, if you remember, has a coffin floating on the canal in Venice <laughs> that was dislodged from the funeral <laughs> boat with that's the knife really thrower in the coffin. So there you go. Yeah, cool. That's cool. Kind of neat. Yeah. Yeah. So dozens of people are in the procession and people are watching the procession who are not in it. In fact, as the coffin is lowered over Hamilton, there are people on the corner watching all of this. There's got one guy with his hands folded in front of him on the corner on the left yeah. and another behind him with his hands in his pockets. And they are looking right at Hamilton's body and the coffin approaching him. My first question is, did they not think this was odd? <laughs> yeah. Hey, it is New and Orleans. my main question is, were all of these people in on the murder and body extraction we just witnessed? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a lot of people to coordinate for a murder. This is Mr. <laughs> Big's territory. Mm. Right, so uh, that could a... be his his entourage, and for all we know, because we see it again later in the movie, this could mm. be a very common way they knock people off in his organization. So you'd need a decent group of people to be able to pull that off. Okay, then that, that may all be true, and I love the scene. However, now the thing I'm thinking here is this was obviously a funeral that was planned as there are no cars parked on Charter Street. Don't knock this scene down. <laughs> there, are no, there are no cars. You'll see, look at this. There's no cars parked on Charter Street when they turn right onto it, right? Okay, but you can see past Dumaine Street, the perpendicular street that they just turned from, that there are cars parked there on Charter Street. So did they know Hamilton would be standing at that very pole at this very moment, way ahead of time, so they can plan this funeral? <laughs> I guess they must have, but it seems odd to me. That's Well, all. maybe Hamilton there was down there to watch operations. He was. So it may not have been he was standing at that pole, but they knew that he had been observing the filet of soul from down in that area. So him standing by a pole might be normal. It's like, okay, well, once this procession passes him by, take him out. Yeah. Okay. I could buy that, but boy, this this don't this, knock this scene. this required planning <laughs> to get a permit for this funeral. <laughs> Mister right. Big probably doesn't need a permit to do a funeral. Yo, I think you do because they had the cars uh, not parked there. That, they, no, but Mister Big, he he probably owns the. He town. is big. He's big. He's big. Okay, I'll give you. I'll give you that. He may have arranged all of this, but Hamilton there <laughs> got a, got a wonder. All right, now. So they pass the filet of soul, and the th for the third time we see the filet of soul. So we know this is going to be part of this movie. Something's going to happen at the filet of soul somewhere here. So, and we mentioned the address that appears over Hamilton's shoulder as 837. This can help us find the location, as the address now we know is 837 Charter Street, and this takes place on the corners of Charter and Dumaine Streets. There you go. You can see the street sign Dumaine clearly a couple of times in the shots. And today, you can still see the three arches where the Filet of Soul stands. And so, there you go. It's a, it's a nice spot to hit and go to. It's another great Bond location. And you could find it easily. That's true. Now, I talked about my disdain about the first of the three murders in the uh, pre-title sequence yeah, earlier. Yeah. Now, this New Orleans funeral and the murder just saves this pre-title for me. <laughs> there isn't anything about this sequence that I don't just love. Oh, yeah. It really felt like they took me back to New Orleans in the 70s. It was an imaginative way to kill someone that seems quite plausible. He's going to have a big organization. 
And so I think it's much more plausible than the first and the third murder. Oh, I like the third one too. Oh, God, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the director Guy Hamilton said in one of the documentaries on this movie that the reason for the amazing boat chase, which we see later, yeah. was they were looking for an, another excuse to bring everybody into New Orleans. They didn't want to bring them in just for the funeral. Yeah. So they found this area near Slidell and they built that the wonderful boat chase around that area. Yeah. So, and that's one of my favorite boat chases in all of the Bond movies. So I'm really glad they found the New Orleans area. Yeah, well, me too. I think it's a great scene. And bam, another immediate cut, but this time to San Monique, an island in the Caribbean. Now wait, <laughs> where have we heard this name before, San Monique? Yeah. Remember at the United Nations murder, there was a quick shot of the representative from San Monique and the woman solitaire? Yeah. Well, now we are there. Yeah. What's the connection? But I love we still that. haven't seen Bond. <laughs> Where's Bond? I know. This is a Bond movie. Where the hell's Bond? <laughs> I mean, yeah. you talk about uh, you know wondering what's going on here. So yeah, I love this connection. We saw them mm. at the UN. Now we're on the third scene that could be another murder, and bam, we're in San Monique. Nice. Yeah. Cool. San Monique is a night scene. Some type of event is happening with torches lighting the outdoor area. Women are being carried over the heads of the carriers. Yeah. A man with some animal headdress. There's a large boa yeah. uh, with a large boa is approaching. Is this some voodoo type of ritual happening? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's it's intriguing. More more so than the United Nations and even New Orleans. Naturally, we are expecting another murder. Yeah. They set us up nicely yeah. because we see a guy strapped to a pole and some women sprinkling some substance on him as he closes his eyes and turns away. I think that's blood they're sprinkling yeah. on him because it's red. It is red. And so yeah. I, I, my, my assumption is it's some kind of blood. Yeah. Well, this yeah. man is Dennis Edwards, who plays Baines. The man with the boas dances right up to the man tied to the pole and puts the snake in his face. You can tell the man on the pole is terrified. This was a real non-venomous boa, but it still had real fangs. And the actor really was scared and did not like shooting this scene. That's true. In the movie, he faints or dies right after the boa bites him. He really looks genuinely terrified. He does. There were rumours that he actually did faint, and they used that shot in the movie. But a friend of ours contacting back in 1999 says that Dennis himself denied that. Yeah, I would too. <laughs> does strike, but it does strike, and he bites Baines, and Baines dies. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah, but wait, wait a minute. Now... I'm cool with the whole voodoo occult vibe that this scene sets. It sets us up for Mr. Big, Teehee, and Baron Samity. However, you said that was a real boa. I, yeah. I, that, that surprises me. I thought it was fake. And one of the reasons I totally dislike this scene is because that, that snake just doesn't look real to me. It, you know, it looks fake to me too. But theoretically, they used a real boa. This is what we hear. Probably an emerald tree boa, because those are the kinds of boas that would have been around in that area. But in the commentary on the Ultimate DVD sets, they do say that Dennis Edwards was terrified of snakes and actually passed out. They say this on the commentary. But as Vicky said above, he denied that he passed out. And if I were him too, I'd deny it too, because that would be pretty embarrassing. It's like, hey, this is just great acting. You know, it's like... Yeah, so this is this is one thing that I that has turned me off to this this murder, you know, because if I'd known it was real, maybe I wouldn't have that reaction when I watched this thing. Yeah. It really did not look real to me. Where the New Orleans murder really felt real, 
the one at the United Nations, I don't know what the heck that was. Yeah. This one just didn't give me the same feeling. And there are no bite marks where the snake supposedly Yeah, did. that bothered me too. No this, bite this marks. Seemed, it just felt so fake. Yeah. And I'm like, you just came off a wonderful murder to give us this. Of course, Hamilton in New Orleans got stabbed once in the side, not in the heart, and boom, he was dead instantly. So there yeah, you go. If he comes up <laughs> up the ribs, you could get it to you could get the heart. Yeah, I don't think he was he was pretty low. Anyway, so I agree that the snake here, there's there's something about it that, that doesn't look real. So if you look closely at the guy holding the snake, and I, I have many times, <laughs> you can see his thumb just behind the boa's head. And it looks like he's pressing it down like he's going to open his mouth automatically. Like a spring. Yeah, like a spring or something. So you see this a couple of times. And so, you know, who knows? But what I liked about this kill is the concept is very believable. A voodoo-type ritual, deadly snakes. Yeah, sure. So the concept is great. The scene, the drums, everything else is great. The snake, I agree. It looks a little little iffy. <laughs> yeah, now, I will, I, I will grant you... Baines did look scared yeah, yeah, yeah. that he didn't like snakes. Yeah. And now that you're telling me that this is a real snake, if I was holding that yeah, snake, yeah. I'd be pressing down right behind the head so it couldn't turn and get me. Right. And maybe that's what so they So maybe they that's what do. he was doing there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know I would not have liked snakes either. I'm an Indiana Jones fan. When he discovers the well of souls and drops a torch down there to see thousands of snakes, <laughs> he says, Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Yeah, I'd be the same way. Oh, I hate snakes. <laughs> and wait, still no Bond. Where's Bond? But we see the flames rise now. We assume he's dead. Our third murder in the pre-title sequence. And we morph into the title song and the title sequence. And where's Bond? No, no, yeah, exactly. Where's Bond? Now, another thing about this title sequence here is Ian Productions wanted Live and Let Die to take a new Bond actor and a character in a new direction. So you keep saying, where's Bond? Mm -hmm. We've got a new direction. We've got a pre-title sequence without Bond in it. Yeah. They also wanted to stay on top of culture. And they did this again with Moonraker. And it's the part of Moonraker I don't really like, but I understand why they did it, which was released two years after Star Wars. Yeah. And sorry, purists, the first one was called Star Wars when they released it. <laughs> yes, it was. I don't call it by whatever the new name is. Um, <laughs> it's Star Wars to me. Anyways, the movie Shaft had come out two years before <laughs> Live and Let Die. It started what was called the black exploitation genre of movies. In those movies, there was generally a lead black character who was usually a hero, not yeah, a villain. Not a villain right. And they showcased a lot of the stereotypical clothes, the language, and the actions that we see here in Live and Let Die. Watching this movie today, these stereotypes have sort of a, I can't believe they did that feel to it. Mm. However, like the funeral scene, the clothes and the hair were of the time. Yeah. So you got to go with that. It's it's also interesting to note that the hand that we see on the plunging United Nations scene, the character who kills Hamilton and the guy who kills Baines are all black men killing white men. Yeah. In one of the documentaries for the movie, writer Tom Mankiewicz said that there was concern that all the black people were villains and you knew Bond had to win. Mm -hmm. That's one reason they created the role of Sheriff Pepper. They wanted a white actor to make fun of. Yeah, that's good. One of the other behind the scenes things that Eon did was hiring many black stuntmen. 
There weren't all that many black stuntmen at the time, so white stuntmen were often used with some makeup to make them look like a black man. In this movie, many black stuntmen were used. Eddie Smith was one of those stuntmen, and he started the Black Stuntmen's Association. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I just love they bring the local people in. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. It is. And I think Ian does does that a lot. And here, besides all the black villains, we see Bond kissing Rosie Carver later in the movie. This was very progressive stuff for the time. And I think Ian Productions took a huge risk here with the racial aspects of this movie, in a sense. These issues came out in the book, too. I think for the most part, it worked, especially for the time when they released it. I think in today's environment, this would have been a very tough movie for Eon to release as is. So, but you know, again, like Tom said, hey, you gotta look at the times and everything else that was going on at the times. And Ian Productions does that all the time. Right. They take current things that are happening in the world and work those into movies. They do this all the time. So, cool. All right, so like Honor Majesty's Secret Service, we cannot only discuss the pre-title here because we haven't seen Bond yet. We must go into the title sequence here to have any clue of what's going on and what's happening. Uh, it's... Hey, wait, the pre-title sequence is over and we did not see Bond at all. Yeah. It's a, it's a Bond film. <laughs> yeah. Is this the first time? I think it's the first time. It is the first time we haven't seen Bond at all, or a likeness of him, like from Russia with well, Love. Well, Live and Let Die is the only James Bond 007 Eon Productions movie where Bond, or a representative of a Bond-like yeah. in From Russia with Love, or go. a mannequin of a Bond-like in The Man with the Golden Gun, oh, does yeah. not appear. Period. No Bond, no likeness of Bond, nothing. No Bond. What's happening? <laughs> yeah, well, no, here's the thing. We do have a new Bond here. Yeah. And when we when they introduced Sean Connery and they introduced George Lazenby, there was a slow reveal of Bond. Right now we have a no reveal of Bond. <laughs> he's, he's not there. They don't show him at all, except you do see him in the gun barrel sequence. Yeah, I think this is the slowest reveal of any Bond movie. <laughs> okay, we have to go to the title sequence to figure this out. It's like, is this a Bond movie? I, okay, I think it is. <laughs> so the title with two, sequence... With two stupid murders and one really good one. Oh, they're all good. <laughs> So the title sequence continues the San Monique Mystique yeah. with flames, the theme song, music playing. Love it. Several great shots of a woman's face, eyes wide open, being consumed in flames. <laughs> that morphs into a skull consumed in flames, then back to the woman's I face. I love that. I love how they did that. Me that too. Was, that was really cool. That was excellent. Yeah. And then you get a close-up with flames seen through the eyes and the nose sockets and then back <laughs> again to the woman's face and then finally back looking through the skull's eyes. It's spectacular. Yeah. It's just amazing. It really is it's, well done. It's all while Live and Let Die is playing and it highlights the live part, the woman's face being consumed in flames and the die part, the skull in flames back and forth. Yeah, And of perfect. course, it's a great title song by... Paul and Linda McCartney, performed by Paul McCartney in The Wings, and I think it's a lot of people's favourite. Yes. Um, we also think it foreshadows how Bond's missions go. He could live or die at any moment. It's, it's just brilliant. It is. Yeah, absolutely. And in keeping with my earlier comments about race in this movie, the women we see in this title sequence are almost all black. Mm -hmm. Again, mm -hmm. this sets the tone for the movie, lets us know we're getting a new type of Bond movie. One woman is holding a gun and has images drawn on her body. Mm -hmm. The head of a snake is drawn on her hand. Fantastic tie back to Bane's death. Yeah. I just I think this title sequence is exquisite. Yeah, I love that. I love the tie back. I love when they do that. And Ian Ian does that pretty well and often. 
And the flames, bodies moving, arms and hands waving are constant. It's chaos until it morphs to a silhouetted dancer against a white background. And then a blue background. Now the white background almost looks like fiber optics. Which... See, I thought it was white hair at first. And now you say fiber optics, that makes sense. It could have been fiber optics because fiber optic lights were getting popular in the 1970s. And there was even a fiber optics Christmas tree patented in 1973. So, hey, there you go. And back to the blue background. So I think, Tom, you could see nips again here. Uh, I'll be silhouetted. <laughs> well, actually, the first shot, it's not that silhouetted. Oh, okay. <laughs> Well, this is one of the first title sequences to show the faces of girls captured on screen. So yet, yet another change for the era. And the title sequence is completely different to what we've seen before. Yeah. Yes. Completely different in, in the style of music and the way it looks. It's, you know, just We have just a new bond and we're going in a new direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and then back to flames, naked women, praying hands that open left and right to show another dancing naked woman as if the hands were holding her. Then they returned to a praying position. Hmm, that was an odd image, praying hands and naked women. Okay, I don't know. I don't know where that's going. I got no problem with that. <laughs> then, then the actual movie begins when the red splits and shows a woman's face. Hi, what is going on here? Where is Bond? <laughs> so what do we know? We know the focus on the title sequence was more of the San Monique feel than the United Nations or the New Orleans feel. So we should expect that this should be the focus of the movie, which it turns out to be. So it foreshadows it all. Yeah. And we still not have seen Bond. <laughs> okay, Tom, you like the reveal. Yeah, I like this the slow reveal. This is a long one. We're about eight minutes in and we haven't seen him yet. And eight we know minutes. we have a new Bond, as in Roger Moore, and he takes the reins as Bond for the first time here in Live and Let Die. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, again, I wouldn't say this is a reveal, right? What happens uh, after the, the title sequence here? Yeah, I would say because, so. So far, it's true. It, yeah, it, but, but in the earlier movies, it was Dr. No and Honor, Her Majesty's Secret Service, you do get a glimpse of Bond, the hat, the cigarette, and you can piece together that this is Bond especially in on Her Majesty's Secret Service. However, yeah, like here Bond doesn't exist, except as I said before, in the gun barrel sequence. So you're getting no reveal of Bond and we're through the title sequence. Yeah. Mm. It's an interesting format because the pre-title sequences usually depict Bond on his latest mission. Yeah. But this one definitely sets the precedent of a new Bond by doing things differently. I don't think we see a massive shift again until 2006 Casino Royale pre-title sequence. Which is a great one. That. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah one uh, of my faves. Well, we still don't know what's going on here after the pre-title well, sequence. We do. There were two lame murders and a really good one. There were three murders, <laughs> all, ter all terrific. But we, so we all know. Here, it's the, we've seen the pre-title sequence. We've watched the title sequence, and we have no idea and don't, haven't seen Bond. And the pre-title was not self-contained. Like in From Russia With Love, we saw Bond mm -hmm. get killed. Well, a Spectre agent who looked like Bond, and it was real, revealed to us that it was not Bond. In Goldfinger, we saw Bond blow up a drug depot in Mexico, and that was that. In Thunderball, we see Jacques Bouvard incident, and that's that. And he only lived twice. We know something is happening with the space capsules, and that's the backdrop for the whole movie. Who's doing this, and why, and how do we stop them? self-contained on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And even in Diamonds Are Forever, they're relatively complete. But here, <laughs> here, 
Here, we have no idea who these three guys are who've been killed in three very different locations in three different ways. We assume they're all connected, but we don't know. So we have to take a look at the first few minutes of the movie to know what's going on. <laughs> okay, so it's the, the movie part after the title sequence starts with Bond at his flat. Yeah. In bed with a beautiful woman. Go figure. Yeah. It's an Italian woman played by Maddie Smith, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, we, we don't see Bond's apartment again until Spectre in 2015. Ah, wow. Yeah. Now, yeah. We, we don't know this is Bond, though. It's, Although most James Bond fans would have known that yeah. the Saint took over the role of James Bond for this movie. Yeah, yeah. So maybe they didn't feel like they needed to do the slow reveal because everybody knew what was going on. Which actually saddens me because I think going forward it's going to be the same thing. There's going to be so much hype about who the new Bond is yeah. that they are not going to be able to do that slow reveal to bring us in. Yeah. Now maybe he won't be in the movie at all. <laughs> <laughs> they got through the title sequence. Right. So, so, so the bell rings. His doorbell rings incessantly, and he looks at his digital watch. It's 1973, so he's got a digital That's watch cool. that looks really cool. It's 5:48 a.m. Yeah. We assume it's a.m. because he's in bed and it, it seems like it's a morning scene. Yeah. The woman says to Bond in English, one more time again. Then in Italian, what sounds like, it's not possible, my love. He gets out of bed and puts on a robe, wondering who'd be at the door at this hour. Yeah. And we see the initials JB on his robe. Yeah, cool. All right, so hang on. He's, he's walking down the steps of his bedroom in his flat, which is a beautiful flat, by the way. And he mumbles, and I've missed this until now <laughs> i've watched this scene a lot and and he kind of mumbles this you don't really get a clearer thing he says you're not married by any chance are you obviously I love that line. obviously love directed that. At, at, directed at the woman as he worries maybe this is her husband at the door it's like this is great when i finally heard this i thought this is a great line it adds so much more to the scene it's fantastic and a simple but delightful addition showing us more of this man's character yeah. Like he didn't ask her before he had sex with her, whether she's married or not. He's just I don't wondering think he now. He really cares if he, they're married or not. Well, actually, he preferred them being married. Uh, yeah. He says that to uh, Vesper Lynn, actually. Oh, that's true. In the car. So, that's yeah. true. He says, so, no. anyways, yeah. he gets down the stairs, he opens the door, and we see it's M, <laughs> not an angry husband. <laughs> yeah, and he good. lets him in with M saying, Good morning, 007. So now it's morning. Okay. <laughs> And now the reveal is complete. This is, w, this is 007 and Bond. There you go. Um, but is it M calls him 007, not Bond? Yes, the robe does have JB on it. Yeah. However, is it a different person getting the 007 moniker? Now, the rumor is that Lashana Lynch's Nomi character in No Time to Die gets called 007. Is this Bond in Live and Let Die? M calls him 007 and Commander. It isn't until he's leaving that M calls him Bond, saying, Good morning, Bond. And then Moneypenny calls him James. There you go. Okay, so hmm. whoever this 007 slash JB guy is, he does say good morning back to M. Then he's looking in his bedroom, not wanting M to see he has a woman in there. Insomnia, sir, he asks. And M replies, <laughs> instructions. I'll explain as you pack. Three of our agents have been killed in the past 24 hours. Uh -huh. Dawes in New York, Hamilton in New Orleans, and Baines in the Caribbean. Now we know. Okay, so now we know all of the three murders, the two uh, bad ones and the good one, were all MI6 agents and all within 24 hours, yeah. which we had no idea of the right. timing. 
when watching the pre-title sequence. Right. So now we have a reason for the rest of the movie. Why were these agents all killed within 24 hours? And who killed them? Yeah. Are these killings connected? That's precisely what 007 will find out. Yeah. And again, you talk about slow reveal. Could they have made it any more slow with the JB and him not calling him Bond until uh, uh, much? Until he's leaving. Until he's leaving. He's like, okay, we we know that's Bond for crying out loud. All right, let's go. All right, for some reason, though, here, which is weird, M is walking towards Bond's bedroom while talking to him. Why would any person do that? that? That would be rude. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe he wants to see if anybody's in there, and he's curious, but Bond distracts him with, Coffee, sir? Directing him to the kitchen. But I thought that was weird. Can I just add, yeah. why is Roger Moore the only one who ever seems to cook in, in, in Bond films? Yeah, he, that's... He, does, he does it in A View to a Kill. He cooks a quiche. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. I've, I've not seen any other... <laughs> You know, that, that may have been a, in, the, in the kitchen. That may have been a, an influence from the Harry Palmer movies because Harry Palmer yeah. was a very good cook and loved well, coffee. And if you think about in the in the first of the Harry Palmer movies, he has the coffee press, yeah. and they put that in because the executive producer had a deal with the press company. But here, Bond right. has this elaborate setup to create the coffee. Yeah. And, you know, even M surprised, he's like, that's all it does. Yeah. <laughs> but you compare and contrast the coffee making for Bond here versus what you saw with Harry Palmer in the Palmer movies. Yeah. They're really, Palmer was supposed to be the anti Bond. Right. And even though he likes his good coffee, it prepared a little different way. Yeah. And which is cool. So we're, we're finally finding out what's going on. And now we're we're into the movie before we know what the heck's happening here. So M discloses yeah, that we're like, we're like twelve minutes in. Oh yeah. So M's t- talking to Bond here with the coffee, and he say, he discloses that Baines was working on a small island in the Caribbean called San Monique, and Dawes was killed in New York, who was keeping an eye on San Monique's prime minister, one Doctor Kananga, and Hamilton was on loan to the Americans in New Orleans. All right, now we're seeing the picture finally coming together. This ties up nicely who the woman in the bedroom is too because M congratulates Bond on his work in Rome. He says, except they're missing one of their agents, a Miss Caruso. (laughs) I wonder where she could be. (laughs) Great, okay. A couple of sentences of dialogue and now we know all about her. This is terrific. That's actually great writing. So now we have the picture. Now we can watch the rest of the movie, <laughs> as uh, Miss Bunny Petty says to Bond on her way out. Ciao, Bello. <laughs> yeah. This is an action-packed, exciting pre-title sequence loaded with intrigue and mystery. We liked it, and it had all the elements of a great pre-title for the Bond series, except, uh, as we pointed out, no Bond, and it's like weird. And yeah, then, but this so this is the only time Bond or his likeness isn't in the pre-title. Yeah, movie. that's true. And we in, in the pre-title sequence, but we missed him. And again, this has to be a record for a slow review, <laughs> if you even want to call it that. <laughs> yeah, and the slowest. Yeah, you know, Roger Moore starts off strong in Live and Let Die, and we see him for an additional six movies. Yeah, it's a great start. In fact, Dan- Daniel yeah. Craig just surpassed him in length of time is the character of James Bond because of the delays with No Time to Die. Yeah, they delay it anymore. Craig will be a grandfather and he'll be like 50 years Bond. So, uh, you know, I don't, I don't like that counting. <laughs> anyway. Now, I want to close by saying this, this is probably one of the few Bond films that hasn't aged well due to its use of black exploitation. 
a genre of growing popularity in the 1970s with films such as Shaft in 1971 and Willie Dynamite in 1974. It's a film of its time and definitely the Bond film that I saw most as a child. But I loved all the occult and the supernatural elements of the film. Yeah, and I'm going to reiterate that without the New Orleans scene, the pre-title sequence would have been a bust for me. But after the pre-title sequence is done, from that point forward, I actually really like this movie I do too. because it's treated differently. There's a different set of challenges for Bond to deal with that you don't really see come back in any other Bond movie. It's a really good in and of itself Bond movie. Yeah, it's one of my top three more Bond movies. So we've looked at the pre-title sequence, the title sequence. We watched half the movie. <laughs> we finally saw Bond and realized <laughs> Okay, this is a Bond movie. So I think that's pretty much a wrap. <laughs> this has been Dan Silvestri, Tom Pizzato, and Vicky Hodges from SpyMovieNavigator.com on our Cracking the Code of Spy Movies show. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, too. And tell a friend about us. Give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app right now. That helps us a lot, and we appreciate it. Thanks for listening.